Dr. Henman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 14 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Hinman has published several articles on adult children and a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Tonight's presentation, Building Recovering Relationships, is Lecture 5 of the Journey Series. It is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. Dr. Henman will discuss Part 1, Five T's in Relationships, Part 2, Facing the Higher Power Issue, and Part 3, Recovery, The Path of a Lifetime. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hinman. Each week, I like to start by sharing a few experiences in my ongoing saga of recovery. And I had two last night by last night, and I had a third today, and I want to share them. The first had to do with something my sister-in-law said while we were playing water volleyball. Over the last four years, a group of friends have gotten together and we play water volleyball. Sports is something that was about as good a success for me as the academics. I basically was never picked for a team anywhere from kindergarten through high school. I was the default mode when it came to sports. Part of my recovery has been the process of letting myself risk trying things. And with these friends, very close friends, in water volleyball, I let myself play even though at first I had never played it before and I felt awkward. She kept saying, gosh, Jim. You're really doing good. You really improved. I'm, you know, feeling a bit better, you know, and I'm slugging it over the net a little bit more. And she made some crack about, boy, you're really a recovering volleyball player, aren't you? And I thought about that, and it's true. By letting myself risk being awkward, and of course I made it safe. I was with very close friends. I have improved in water volleyball. That's real important to me. The awkwardness and the freedom to risk is what recovery is all about. Now, I'm not going to change my life and become a professional water volleyball player. But the fact that I have that choice of realizing the improvement over these years is real significant. And it's just real special to me. The other point in recovery I forgot the second one. I hope it will come. It's floating around the room somewhere right now. I always knew this was going to happen to me. 
happened today, and that was when I got information that the newspaper announced the talk tonight on the 28th. Tonight is the 26th. And my little kid went nuts inside. No one's going to come to the talk tonight. It's the last one. You're not going to be there on the 28th because you're going to a conference and it's going to be a disaster. And you probably never had that feeling yourself. <laughs> but as for me, I just soon not have it again for a while. I have been fluctuating in and out all day from that. It's like, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And I think, again, that's what recovery is all about. I got it. I got it. I ain't got it. You know, was it the uh, uh, Abbott and Costello? I got it. I got it. And you keep missing it. But then once in a while, you get it. And all day long, I'd get it, and I'd lose it. I'd grab the steering wheel, and I'd be so uptight that my stomach would be a knot, and I'd recognize it, and I'd let go of the steering wheel. I'd say, okay, you know, if no one shows up, oh well, doo-doo happens. You know, even recovery, bad things happen. And I would let it go, and I'd go on, get focused in what I was doing, and I'd grab it again. At this moment, I've let it go. You may notice if somewhere in the evening I grab it again. It's real obvious. You ever notice that when you grab it? It's real obvious to everybody, but particularly to yourself. When you let it go, you don't think anyone notices. People notice when you're able to let go. When you're able to be, instead of tightly holding on. At the moment, seeing that six of you showed up tonight, on the wrong night, on the 26th, <laughs> makes me feel a bit more relieved. And I remembered the second one. I want to share it because Leslie's here. On Sunday, I was going to a going away party for uh, a friend. And she'd given me instructions to get to the place where uh, the party was going to be. And there were very clear instructions. Very clear instructions. But I had an expectation in my mind. I knew where it was. It was the wrong complex, though. And so, as usual, Sonia and I were cutting it down the last 15 seconds. I don't like to be late, but I'm never early. You know, that sort of place in between. And I wanted to get there, because we weren't going to be able to be there a long time. And so we get there, and it's not what Leslie had described. And I'm looking around, I'm getting real uptight. You ever get uptight? You know, kind of... You know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm the passenger, and Sonia's driving, and I'm just getting more and more uptight, and I'm getting not real cheerful, you know? I mean, you know, I'm feeling it's my fault, so we say, let's just go back home and call again. So I go back home. Sonia does the calling. I was in no mood to talk on the phone at all. Leslie gives the same instruction she'd given me before. This time, Sonia didn't have that preconceived notion. How often when we're hearing things through a preconceived notion does something get garbled? And then we feel so frustrated because we know we're doing the right thing and the place ain't there. It's not where it's supposed to be. 
and we can blame the other person or we can blame ourselves. Either of those two work real well to either have depression or anger. Part of my recovery is being able to accept the fact that I'm a feeling human being. I can get ticked. I can get mad. It took me years to get to the point that I could own my anger. No one's going to take it away from me. I'm proud of the fact that I can get angry. I'm also proud of the fact that I can let it go, that I can feel it, own it, and let it go. I don't use it to abuse other people. I don't use it to abuse myself. Human beings have feelings. And one of the things that I like about the approach that I've been working on recovery skills training in terms of, of a practical application, cognitive perceptual reconstruction in general, is it doesn't expect people to become perfect. It doesn't expect people to stop being feeling human beings. Sometimes in cognitive programs, the goal is to not be feeling bad feelings. I disagree with that goal. It's how you cope with the feelings that you're having that determines whether or not your, the quality of life is going to be worth living. Human beings get mad. Human beings get sad. Human beings get scared. That's not a sign of pathology. Depression and sadness are not the same thing. They're different. We need to respect that we can have feelings, and by not blocking them, we can do a lot to avoid anxiety and depression, which are clinical problems. But feelings themselves are a normal part of being a human being. So that's a glimpse into my week of recovery. One tantrum, one panic, <laughs> and a real successful volleyball. Not a bad score for a week. I just wanted to share that with you. Last week I talked about the five R's of recovery, the importance of reality, of accuracy, of taking the responsibility of owning at a given moment, I choose, either intentionally or through default, I choose how I'm going to respond to other people, how I'm going to respond to myself. It's a choosing process. I choose to take responsibility. It may not be that I like what I do. I wasn't really happy about being uptight today. I wasn't really happy about being real gnarled up with frustration when I couldn't find the, uh, the apartment that I was wanting to find on Sunday. I didn't like those feelings. But I take responsibility that I was the one that was creating them. And therefore, I have a choice of what I want to do with them. And choice is at the very heart of recovery. The very heart of it is choice. Regret. The honest feeling of grieving over past, whether past that you did or past that was done to you. If you try to avoid the regret, you really impede your recovery. Regret and shame are not the same thing. Regret and guilt are not the same thing. Regret is a healing process of allowing yourself to feel the blocked feelings and letting them go. Respect is at the very heart of recovery. Respecting yourself, respecting others, valuing yourself, valuing others.
and finally relationship, which is what we're talking about tonight, building, recovering relationships. So with that in mind, let's see what this is all about. As a superb speller, I wanted to get some keywords in just to kind of balance the, uh, the whole process. Thought, temperament, talking, time, and trust. When I'm talking about building recovering relationships, I don't simply mean with another person. If you don't have a recovering relationship with yourself, it's extremely difficult. I'm not going to say impossible. I don't know how to do it in terms of having a recovering relationship with someone else. It doesn't mean it can't be done. I simply don't know how to do it. What do I mean by thought? I love Rocky Road ice cream. You love vanilla and you hate chocolate. You're allergic to marshmallows. You break out in a rash with nuts. Right? But I'm going to be thoughtful. Because I'm a nice guy. So I'm going to get her some ice cream. So what do I get her? Rocky Road. I get a Rocky Road because doesn't everyone like it? I do. Is that the kind of thought you give in your relationships? I don't particularly like vanilla ice cream. So why on earth would I get her vanilla? Blech. It's kind of white, and it just sort of sits there, no texture. Who would, in the right mind, would like vanilla? So I'm going to get her a thoughtful gift of Rocky Road. She hates it. And I can feel offended and hurt because look what I did for you. And you're just thoughtless. You, no one can please you. No one. You just, you just can't satisfy this woman, right? I've been thoughtful, and where does it get me? Nowhere. I want you to take a moment and think about your thoughtfulness in your relationships with other people. Do you give Rocky Road to people that love vanilla? Is that the style of thoughtfulness that you practice? If so, you need to start using different muscles. Thought is allowing room in your heart and in your mind for the other person. Thought is allowing yourself to change, like we say in recovery skills training, change the camera angle and look from the other person's perspective. Stepping into the other person's shoes so that the gift can match what they would enjoy. I don't want her to give me vanilla. Why should I give her Rocky Road? Thought means that you get beyond that person simply being an object that you respond to and instead becomes a flesh and blood human being. Thought. And with thought becomes different ways of giving.
there are more than four ways, but let's just keep it real simple for right now. Different styles of giving. One that is near and dear to the hearts of most codependents, coercion. Giving out of fear. If I don't give, they're not going to like me. If I don't give, they're going to be upset. If I don't give, they're going to drink. If I don't give, I don't, you know, whatever the threat is. Take a moment and think the last time you gave because of the fear of coercion on the part of another person. Take a moment and get in touch with how familiar that kind of giving is. Notice how satisfying that is. Notice how it makes you feel warm inside when you're giving because you want to avoid some kind of bad thing happening. Doesn't it just kind of warm the cockles of your heart? Doesn't it make you feel good inside when you give that kind of giving? How about obligation? Giving out of duty. Husbands should give flowers, therefore I will give flowers. Doesn't it make you feel good inside when you give out of duty, out of obligation? Here, I've just given you your gift. <laughs> it takes it away from the receiver, too. You know, receivers aren't brain dead. <laughs> they realize when you give out of duty. Yes, I will go to the play with you, and I'm going to make you pay for it every act. And then I'm going to let you hear about it for the next 16 years. About the time I went to the play with you. Doesn't it just make you feel like turning around and giving back some more? Huh? It makes you feel really good inside. Another one, anticipation. Giving because if I give to you, you're going to give back. That's fine. That hidden agenda is fine if it's explicit, if it's out in the open. If I say, Betty, you're going to hold this silly clock so that I can know what time it is, and in, in, in return, I won't embarrass you too much. <laughs> Qualifiers, right? She's my sister. She can take it. Usually, those agreements are not made explicit. I give thinking that you're going to give back, and when you don't, I feel ripped off. When's the last time you felt ripped off? When's the last time you feel like you had an agreement except you never said anything to the other person and then you felt hurt when they didn't know what the agreement was? Take a moment and get in touch with that. How familiar is that feeling to you? That feeling place? What all three of these have in common is that they don't give you back much when you give in those three styles. When you're giving out of coercion, obliga obligation, or anticipation, it, it leaves you depleted. The last kind of giving, giving freely, the more you give freely, the more you get back. It's a strange phenomenon, but when you give freely, when you say, I want to give something to Richard because I just want to give it to him, Instead of losing something in the transaction, 
I actually gain something in that free giving. The trouble is, if we are bombarding ourselves with a 50-pound pack of rocks called obligation, coercion, and dissipation, we often don't give ourselves the space to give freely. You can't say yes if you can't say no. If I'm not free not to give, I'm not free to give freely. If I feel like that if I don't give something to you, I'm in trouble, I can't be free to really give it to you. Think about that. If you can't say no, if you can't say thank you but no thank you, this doesn't fit for me, then how can you really be free to say yes? and really mean it, and have it feel good inside. There's a very high cost of not being able to say no. The cost is too high. When you live your life with the fear that if you don't somehow do A, B, or C, you're going to be punished. We've got to move beyond that in the process of recovery. One last point here. <clears throat> Freedom is the ability to do what you want to do, even if someone else demands that you do it. Ugh. Kind of a stiff uh, criterion, isn't it? You notice how, at least with me, I tend to be pretty rebellious. If you want me to do something, ask me. No problem. I enjoy doing it. Tell me, and there's this rod. I mentioned this in previous talks. I get real rebellious. Didn't you get rebellious? But I'll bet the person sitting by you may. Right? Look to your left and right, and you'll probably find a rebellious person somewhere in your row. How often we're so busy rebelling that we rob ourselves of freedom. It's too high a cost. It's time to say, this is how I want to be, even if someone is demanding that I be that way. And taking back our own power. It's time to do that. The second T is temperament. My brother came up with a story several years ago. I want to share it. My mom lives up in the mountains. And we were all going up there to a family event. And it's like up toward Dodge. You all familiar with that, that area above Sonora? Traffic is terrible. He's in his van. My, Bobby's about as patient as I am, okay? He's driving in and out. You know, you get one car ahead. I gotta hurry and get up there and relax. I gotta hurry and get up there and relax. And somehow he hurt himself. And he started to laugh. He says, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. And he sat back in his captain's chair in his van, cranked up the stereo, and started to relax right then. How much of your life are you hurrying to get somewhere, hurrying to do something so that you can relax, hurrying to do something so that you can feel good? Accomplish something so that you can feel a sense of well-being. How about learning from my little brother? 
start now. Give yourself the freedom to go ahead and enjoy now the trip up to the cabin. By the time you get to the cabin, you're not going to be any longer. It takes just as long. This way or this way. It takes the same length of time. It's called being proactive instead of reactive to life. It's taking on the choice of how you want to be with yourself and with others. What attitude do you want to have with yourself? What kind of attitude do you want to have with those that are important to you in your life? We've talked before about powerful vulnerability, which comes out of mutual respect and valuing and accepting yourself and others where they are in transit. It's a very powerful position, the most powerful position I know of interpersonally. Take a moment and think about your temperament towards yourself. What kind of temperament do you have with yourself? What kind of attitude? Do you, you, do you approach yourself with? Sit up straight! Don't make a mistake! Don't be so stupid! That's temperament. But hear the cries when that happens? <laughs> what if you put your arm around yourself where you are in transit, radical as it may be, and say, I choose to accept myself as I go on the journey. It's a lot less wear and tear on the body. It's a lot less wear and tear on the soul to make that choice. It's time to have unconditional acceptance of self and others. That doesn't mean that you like everything that's happening. Talking is a third T in building relationships. When's the last time you risked being open with significant people in your life, including yourself? When's the last time you were open with yourself? When's the last time you risked being open with someone you cared about? How did it go? If it went badly, what can you learn from that? If it went well, how can you allow yourself to do more of that. See, either way, it's just an outcome. If it goes well, great, celebrate that, keep moving on. If it goes badly, learn from it, celebrate the fact that you did the risking, and move on. Either way, catch the, the common denominator, moving on. Continuing the risking process. It's only pain. But it's painful whether you do it or not. You can't avoid it. You think somehow in your head, if I just am invisible enough, it won't hurt. And yet many of you know the pain of invisibility. It's one of the worst pains of all. You can't avoid pain and be alive. How you choose to experience it, what it means to you, is where you have the choices in recovery. Time, the gift of time, 
both for yourself and for others. Think of your priorities. Think of the impact of this modern disease of stress and hurry. How much time, quality time, are you giving to those that are important to you? How much time, quality time, are you giving to you? When's the last time you said, I'm going to spend an evening with me because I'm in good company? Something that would have been possible for me to say 12, 13 years ago. Now it's something that's very possible to do. I remember a number of years ago when life was just crushing down on me and my, my son Jesse was about five at the time said to me, I'll mind you if you'll spend more time with me. Well, I had been home enough time, but I had been preoccupied with some business things and some talks and some different kinds of issues. I was physically there, but I wasn't there. And he noticed. Think about how neat a gift that was. My son noticed that I wasn't really there. And I looked at him and I said, no, Jesse, you're going to mind me because I'm, I'm your dad. I don't make deals about that. And I'm more than willing to spend more time with you, and I'm really glad you noticed. Thank you for noticing. That was a neat gift that he gave me. Intimacy requires time. And in this modern age of commuting, in this modern age of two jobs, three jobs, so you can make enough money to buy the gifts because you feel guilty because you don't have enough time to spend with people. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Or the macho shtick that says, and this will be male or female, by the way, I'll work three jobs or four jobs so that you don't have to work. This is not logical. You know? Our society assumes that you should be working more because the goal in life is the person with the most toys wins. You know that. Whoever ends up with the most toys wins. But you know the flaw in that equation? You accumulate all the toys, and the divorce lawyer splits them in half. You spend all this money and time compensating for the guilt of not giving of yourself, and your kids hate your guts. Because they don't want your stinking toys. They want you. As hard as that may be to believe, they want you, not your toys. They may not know that. <laughs> they may think they want the toys. Don't be confused by the facts. The reality is that there's no substitute for the gift of self. Sonia and I, I'm, I'm in full-time private practice. What that means operationally is I don't work, I don't get paid. That's what private practice means, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. And what that means also 
is that when I chose to not work Fridays, it meant there was going to be a 20% cut in the family income. Now, I don't know about any of you, there's never enough money. Notice that? There's never enough money. But there also wasn't enough of me when I was working five full days a week, putting out the kind of energy I put out. I only have one speed when I'm working, and that's high energy. I needed more time. We talked about it, and the agreement I made with Sonia was, okay, we'll do this. But the first time you tell them we don't have enough money, I'm going back to work. You want me home, I don't want to hear we don't have enough money. You know, We'll make budget cuts together, but the fact is, this is a team effort. That gift of time, both to Jim, to Sonia, to Jesse and Nathan, to friends, costs money. And it's cheap at twice the price. Because then I have some of me left at the end of the day to give to the people I love, including me. That's called recovery. How much time are you spending? How much is there of you left at the end of the day to give? Are you so exhausted that it's a flat EEG? You put your car in automatic. You pull in the driveway, you come in, the mummy returns. I don't want to take any crap off you guys. I've been working hard all day. I had enough problems at the office. Leave me alone. Don't expect anything from me. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. Quit breathing that way. Glad to have you home, Dad. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like something you want to curl up with? Huh? Isn't that nice? Isn't that special? Isn't that precious? We've got to fight against the disease of our present age that says the most toys wins, that says to make more money is better. I want you to think about something real seriously. Those of you that have been around for a few years, particularly if you've been in a relationship for a while, celebrating my starting of my 18th year of marriage, in about a week, they told us it wouldn't last. I'll show them. <laughs> Not a rebellious bone in my body. When Sonia and I first got together, we were real poor. Not by some standards, but we couldn't afford everything we wanted, so that's real poor. See, you notice, no matter how little or how much you make, that's just not quite enough. So if you make $8,000 a year or $80,000 a year, you still bump up against it. I want you to think back when you're making as little as you made in your current relationship. What I hear again and again is people are going to get divorced after having made lots of money. Is they were often happiest when they were struggling together. And they weren't making much at all. They didn't have a pot to sit on or stand up and use, whichever. 
The fact is, often once you are so busy accumulating, you lose the relationship anyway. I would invite you to think inside now and tonight to consider the possibility that maybe you need to turn around and do some hard thinking about what your priorities are. Recovery is a participation sport, and one of those pieces of participation is looking at your priorities. It was not easy to cut a day off the week. The overhead remained the same. I'm glad I did it. It's part of my recovery. The fifth T in building recovering relationships is trust. Trust is, is one of the more elusive of the T's. My mom violated trust about 17, 16 years ago. Before that time, she was a good card-carrying codependent, lived for her children. Was, she, was not a, she was not a complainer. I mean, it was genuinely, that's, her mother had been a very loving mother to her. That was her identity, was being a good mom. It wasn't a sacrificing kind of thing at all. But basically, the kids came first, and second, and third. There were three of us. And then came everything else, and then she kind of would, if there was anything left over, then that would be for her. And there's never anything left over. You notice that? There's never anything left over. And I remember we went to a workshop together, and she discovered this pattern. She had not known what was going on. It was just how things are. This is just how wives are. This is how mothers are. She grew up in Kansas, Benton, Kansas, population 137. That's counting the horses and the cows and the tractors. She changed her mind in midstream on me and said no. And I was so angry at her. Because suddenly, she was in the equation. Suddenly, her wants were as important as mine. Not more important, not less important. They were as important as mine. And I didn't know how to deal with that. What do you mean, no? And it only took four years for me to realize and begin my recovery from my codependency and learning to say no. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have made that choice for me even if she hadn't made that choice herself. But I'd like to embarrass her for a second and ask her to stand up. guilty of two things. 
One is having entered recovery <laughs> and didn't warn me with at least six months' notice. <laughs> so I could kind of work in on it. But you know what she did when I got angry? I'll never forget. It was on Lakewood in Modesto. And I was just furious with her. And she accepted my anger and didn't defend. She had on that vest of powerful vulnerability before I even knew what it was. She didn't withdraw her love. She accepted that I was angry and didn't change back to the old. She allowed me to have my feeling reaction, which allowed the relationship to continue. Now I do trust her. I can ask her things, because I trust that she can say no. So I believe her when she says yes. I can't trust someone that can't say no to me. I feel inhibited asking favors of someone that can't say no, because if they can't say no, then how do I really know if it's okay? I've got to do both jobs. I don't like doing both jobs. I'll do my job, thank you very much. You do your job, you let me know if it doesn't fit. The other thing she's guilty of, I mentioned this a little bit before, she's guilty of having given me unconditional love. She couldn't give it to herself at that time that I was growing up, but she could give it to me, my brother and my sister, which made it possible for me to have a feeling, visceral appreciation that my higher power could love me unconditionally. She gave me a glimpse of grace on a personal level. Having absolute faith in my ability to do whatever I wanted to do when reality said, this person's a loser. When reality said, this kid ain't going to go very far. That's trust. That's trust. I want you to take a moment and feel inside how much or how little you trust you. How trustworthy are you? And how trusting do you feel in the relationships you're in at the present time? And how do you feel about the answer you're receiving? If you don't like the answer, that's okay. Change. It's really as simple and hard as that. If you don't like the answer to how trustworthy you are, begin becoming more trustworthy. Imperfectly, one step at a time. Steps forward, steps back. If you don't like how you feel in terms of trust with your significant other, the relationships that are really important to you in your life, go to them and say, you know something? I really have a hard time trusting you. And the reason is because every time you say A, you do B. You say this and you do that. Your mouth goes this way, your feet go that way. 
I'm going to start trusting your feet. I would like to trust your mouth. Put them together. Thank you very much. And I will try to do the same. You have a right to want trust toward yourself and toward others. And I think it's really important to understand that it's okay to want that. It's okay to work toward that, toward yourself and toward others. Probably the hardest kind of trust is the trusting process with a higher power. Because we tend to project onto a higher power the relationships we have been in in our life. You notice that? We, we talk about God as being Father. For how many of you is that a really useful concept? If you had a father who sexually abused you, if you had a father that physically or verbally or psychologically abused you, doesn't that make you want to go right out and hug God? You know, curl right up with Him? No, it makes you say, I've got to be good enough to not upset Him. Or He will treat me the way my parent figures treated me. The whole issue of a higher power is one that in professional psychology, psychiatry, psychology in general, has not been as well addressed as I believe it should because they confuse spirituality with religion. And I'm not talking about religion at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about religion, nor does anyone have a right to shove their beliefs down another person's throat. Again, hear that. If someone tries to shove beliefs down your throat, run away. They're not safe. I'm talking about the kind of relationship with a higher power that helps lubricate the path of recovery. That helps assist that fledgling new program adult that I was talking about last week. So I want to talk a few minutes about how we make that real difficult. Again, so you can have a choice. You want to have a choice, even in making things more difficult. People ask, can you prove that there's a God? Yeah! Prove it! I dare you to prove it! Okay. Can you prove it? No? Mm -mm. Let's look at the other side of the question. Can you prove there isn't? <laughs> right back. Being real adult. <laughs> if you ask it one way, you feel almost an imperative to reject the higher power issue. If you say, can you prove there's a God? And the answer is no. Well, <laughs> there's the ball game. If you ask it the other way, you get a very different response. Can you prove there isn't? No. Then I have every right to, to choose to believe it if I want to. Whatever that may mean for each individual person. Why should I believe in a God when you can't prove that he exists? 
flip the question around. Why shouldn't I believe in a God when you can't prove he exists? Be careful how you're asking your questions. Not simply in the issue of higher power, but in general. How you ask your questions confines your reality. It almost directs your choices. Instead of those questions, I would invite you to say, is it useful for me to believe in a higher power? Is it useful? Not, is it true? Because you can't prove that it's true or not true. Is it useful to believe it? And secondly, what would it cost me to believe in a higher power? What is the cost benefit ratio. Let's be hard-nosed about this. Let's be practical about this. What is the cost-benefit ratio of choosing to believe versus not believe? Ask yourself that question. Since you can't prove it, you can go either direction. One of the obstacles for most folks around the whole higher power issue is the pain that comes up from childhood when you made all those deals with God. Remember the deals you made with God when he let you down? When you were a kid and you said, okay, if I'm real good, you'll let my friend stay and not move away. My doggy won't die. My cat's going to come back. My daddy's not going to drink anymore. My mommy's not going to beat me anymore. Those deals you made with God and he let you down, he didn't make the deals. He wasn't in on the process. You need to look at it from your adult eyes. Another obstacle, how can there be a loving God with all this crap going on in the world? Babies dying, people being killed in airplane crashes. How can there be a loving God? I don't think that God necessarily kills babies. I think we do a good enough job on our own. I think it's time we begin to realize that. I don't deserve to be loved. I've got to do it myself. Think about the obstacles that you use to keep from having the kind of resource that makes recovery more of a natural process. And again, I'm not talking religion. And again, I'm not saying that anyone has a right to define for you what that higher power is. I would like to give a suggestion of some basic accoutrements that I think are helpful in recovery. I think as a, as a minimum, that higher power needs to be a belief system that directs actions and thoughts in a healthy way. For example, I think that AA can be a higher power. I think that any belief system that gives you a sense of guidance to help you in choosing differently in life can be your higher power. A belief system can be your higher power. On the other hand, if you simply go with the belief system, what you lose is the personal relationship. And to me, recovery is all about relationship. 
You know, I've talked a lot about at different times about my big brother. Growing up in a, in a Christian background, it, it, probably not real surprising who my big brother is, but I'm not about to push that on somebody else. Find your own system that works for you. The question is, how is it working for you? If it's working good, great. If it's not working good, then it's time to look and build a system that works better for you. I can't imagine going through life without my big brother. See, I grew up desperately wanting to be accepted by anyone that would have me. Some of you know what that feels like, don't you? You'd sell your soul for some acceptance, some approval, some willingness for people to let you tag along. The idea of being able to go through life without ever having to worry about at least one person loving me is what has allowed me to risk intimacy with others. I can risk intimacy with Sonia, my wife. I can risk intimacy with my kids, with my, my family, with my friends, because I know I have a safety net. That if everything turns to total dog doo-doo, I still have my big brother. Now, my life hasn't turned to dog doo-doo. And I'm glad, and I'm not wanting it to. But the fact is, that safety net has made it easier for me to risk fighting with Sonia. I want to tell you about how psychologist marriages go. You probably wondered that. You said here nothing. I wonder how psychologists get along with each other. Sonia and I, I can say, we're going to be starting our 18th year, August 5th. The first five years, we looked like we were battling. In fact, one, when I was in my doctoral program, a girl that stayed with us got us batakas. You know what batakas are? They're foam bats. Because we used to argue. We weren't physical, but we used to argue a lot. I call it farting and belching. <laughs> and our relationship in the first several years of life was like the campfire scene of Blazing Saddles. Yeah, it really was. I had been in a relationship, I had been in a marriage where I was a card-carrying codependent. It took me a year to hate her and another year to figure out how to get out without hurting her. I was good, a good codependent. It wasn't her fault. She's a, a fine lady. It was not her fault. But I learned something from that. And what I learned was that I would not turn my back on myself. I would not treat her disrespectfully, but I would not treat me disrespectfully. That was a commitment I made because I, would, I never, ever, ever wanted to go through a divorce again. It was awful. It was a painful, painful thing. And that commitment was so that I wouldn't have to. And so Sonia and I would battle back and forth. And she was a very passionate Italian. And I was Mr. Spock. Pointed ears, Vulcan, you know, from Star Trek. I was so logical and rational. Thinking back makes me want to puke. 
you know? I was so boring. There was no one home below the neck. I'd given up feelings for Lent and Easter never came. I just had <laughs> just stopped them. It hurt too much to be me. I just won't feel. Thank you. No, no, I'm, just, I'm not going to feel anymore. I'll be logical. I'll be rational. I will use my verbal skills to beat you senseless and be nice doing it. <laughs> I will do nothing wrong. And so Sonia had very healthy feelings. And I would say, I'll talk to you when you're rational. Wasn't that sweet? Uh, and then one day, I was having one of my rare moments of emotionality. And at that time, they really were very, very rare. But I was really jazzed up about something. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, I'll talk to you when you're rational. <laughs> there were footprints on the... That concludes Disc A. Please insert Disc B. That concludes Disc A. Please insert Disc B.